it's difficult um, to teach somebody who thinks who knows everything. In a way, um, it's the problem with this expert of the law. The problem is that he's an expert in the law. He is a modern-day PhD. He's a modern-day theology professor. He knows the Bible inside and out. I mean, back then, actually, the, these rabbis had m- memorized most of the Bible. But when he, hears, when he hears of this man, Jesus, going around teaching, he's curious. So we're told in verse 25 that he wants to go and test Jesus. He wants to know if this Jesus knows as much as he knows. He probably wants to trap Jesus, catch him, say something silly, so he could say, ah, you're just an imposter. I am really the authority. So he asks, he comes to Jesus and he asks this theological question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replies by asking the summary of the law. What is the summary of the law? What does the law say in verse 26? And our professor is not phased because he knows the Bible and he answers right, um, rightly uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, 25, the famous Shema, the heart of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And he, qu- he quickly adds from Leviticus nineteen eighteen, love your neighbor as yourself. And really, it's an admirable summary of the law, and his training was worth something. He can summarize, really, what the whole thing is about. The whole thing, I mean, we know instinctively that there, this, this life must be about loving God and loving our neighbors. And that, that, that's what the Bible says, and he summarizes as well. This love God and love our neighbor is really, loving our neighbor is really at the heart of the law. That's what really it's all about. But instead of a pat on the back, Jesus actually replies in verse 28, do this and you will live, implying that maybe the professor didn't do what he knew. He didn't practice what he preached. It's a punch to the jaw. And so the professor picks himself up quickly and he answers back. And we're told in verse 29 that he answers back because he wants to justify himself. He asks Jesus, but who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Remember, if you think about the question, really, this is the most important question. His salvation is at stake. How do I inherit the eternal life? The salvation is at stake. And he asked just one man. He asked the only man who was really fully qualified to answer this question, give, you, give, give, give people the exact answer. But when he hears of this answer, he doesn't go home and mull over the answer. He doesn't think, how can I do this? He wants to justify himself. He's not interested in Jesus' answer. Remember, he came to test Jesus in the first place. It's hard to teach somebody who thinks they know already. A pastor named Wade Bradshaw wrote a book called Searching for a Better God, um, in which he says the problem, he says this is the problem with uh, the people of this generation. In the past, when bad people wanted to be good, they came to church. They, want, they, they, they came and looked um, uh, for the church to teach them how to live a good life. Because they at least believe that Jesus taught uh, people how to be good. And he argues in the, in the book, I, I think convincingly, that things have changed. That people of this generation actually think that they know better than God. They know, um, they, they, they know better than God, and they think there's something wrong with God. And so people ask the question, things like, God, I think, looks angry. He seems so angry. Why is God, why is God so angry? 
God seems like a bully. Why is he so jealous? Why, do, why, why does God hate homosexuals? They would say. And it seems like God, if there is God, he's not ruling this world very well. That's the assumption, that they know better than God, that there's something wrong with God. And now all these questions, I mean, could be genuine questions, could be that they're really looking for the answer. But assumption is that they know better than God. And so a lot of times when the answer's offered, when they come to church, when they, uh, when they hear answers from Christians, they dismiss it right away because they think they know better than God. Many people believe that God has nothing to offer them. Their attitude is why I believe... Um, um, their, their attitude is such that they, they ask, well, if God hates gay people, then I, I'm not going to listen to them anymore. They're not interested in listening to the scripture. They're not interested in listening to Christianity or Jesus. And I don't know where, what kind of background that you have. If this is you, if this rings a bell in you, may I just plead with you that you listen to Jesus today, that you come with a humble heart, not only because he is your maker, the one who created even the possibility of your rebellion, these rebellious thoughts, but also because this God is God who knows better than you, but, and he loves you. He's emptied himself to die for you. He's that God. Could I plead with you that you consider the possibility that you might be wrong, that your assumptions might, might be wrong, your thoughts about the, the Bible and God might be wrong. Would you take the time to discover who Jesus is? You know, we're going to run Christianity Explored in um, late September. Come, come find out who Jesus is. Come find out what kind of a man he is because he'll not, he'll, he will not disappoint. He's not a man who disappoints you. Come and find out. But I'm sure that I'm not, I mean, this is most of you. Most of you have come and you want to listen to Jesus. But um, if this doesn't apply to you, may I also once again ask all of you to consider the possibility that you come humbly and, 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 and that you might learn something new about um, what Jesus has to teach. Because the problem with this expert of the law is that he thought that he really knew the law. And that was precisely the problem that prevented him from listening to Jesus. I know there are many Christians who have been Christians for a long time in this church, people who have been you know, in the church for a lifetime, but come and listen to Jesus today. Because the words of Scripture, I think, are very surprising. And you see, the problem with many of us is because we think we know what the Bible has to say, we miss the radical nature the, the, the radical message of Jesus. We have tamed Jesus and his message because we think that we know what it already says. So let me just give you a few examples. Take um, Jesus' teaching on the family, for example. We probably think that Jesus taught us to be good, to be good members of the family. And that, you know, in many ways is true. The Bible teaches uh, us how to be good husbands and good wives, good children and good, uh, uh, good parents. And there are passages like that. But you might be surprised then uh, if I say, actually, that none of the Gospels portray Jesus as family-friendly. He's not a family-friendly God in many ways. In Mark, for example, when Jesus is told that his brothers and sisters have, uh, have come, his mother and brothers have come, 
and are waiting for him, looking for him, Jesus responds in Mark 3, Here are my brothers and uh, mother and mother and, uh, and brothers. Whoever does the will of my God, will of God, is my brother and sister and mother. Remember in Luke 14 when Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his, uh, his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. The New Testament defines family radically differently than how we think of family. We're told that we're all married to Jesus, that Jesus is our spouse, that singleness has an equal status in the church of God as married people, that single people could have children, not biologically, but spiritual children. We're told that our common faith in Christ much, is much more important than the DNA that we share, that our baptismal water is thicker than the blood. That's a radical teaching, and that's just one aspect of Jesus' teaching, teaching on family. Doesn't that go against what we think Jesus would say about family? Does not go against what we think, what we assume um, about Christianity. And does not go against the culture, this Chinese culture that we're in, in which we think family is everything. Family is different, according to Jesus. It's different because of, because of what he had done for us. And the words of Scripture, I plead with you that you listen to it every day. You listen to it with a humble humility to, to, to say, this will, God is going to teach us something new. He will challenge us, challenge our assumptions, and challenge our, our, our lives. This is the word of God. This is the word of God, and it will continue to turn our world upside down for the rest of our lives. Because these are the words of God, the words of the, our maker, who is drawing us to be more like him. And we are not like him in many, many ways. So come humbly. Come humbly. Come to the scripture humbly. Come to Jesus humbly. And of course, this is also true of our concept of who our neighbors are, who our neighbor is. The expert of the law asked Jesus, who's our, who's our neighbor? He asks because he feels defensive, but Jesus seems to change the definition of what a neighbor is in this famous story. And I know you know the story. Um, there's a robber who's been attacked. He's stripped of his clothes. He's beaten, and he's left half dead. A priest comes and sees the man in verse 31, but he goes across to the other side. He passes him by. You know, maybe he's worried that a priest can't function if it touches if he touches a, a, a dead thing, and if he sees if he helps this person, he might think, "Well, I can't function as a priest today anymore." Maybe he, that's the thought. Maybe he's just callous. He's a priest. He's a man of God. He should have helped. He should have helped, but he doesn't. In verse thirty-two, we also see a Levite. A man comes and he, he passes him by. As a member of this special tribe, entrusted with all the religious functions of the chosen people of God, this man should have helped, should have gone across and see what was wrong with him, how he could help him, but he doesn't. He sees the man, crosses to the other side, and walks him by, passes him by. In verse 33, we see a Samaritan. Samaritans were considered half-breeds by the Jews because a long time ago, Assyrians came and forced themselves upon the Samaritans 
when they occupied the country. And so their pure Jewish blood is compromised. And they didn't worship in Jerusalem because actually they weren't welcome in Jerusalem. And so they set up a rival place of worship in Mount Gerizim, which Jewish people were not happy about. They also rejected all the parts of the Old Testament except the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And they claimed that they were the real Jews. Needless to say, the Jews and the Samaritans did not like each other. But when this Samaritan man sees this Jewish man on the side, he takes pity on him. He crosses to the other side. He treats his wound. He pours oil and wine to heal and to disinfect the wound and puts the man on his donkey and brings him to the inn, takes care of him. He stays there all day and all night. And next day, he gives the money to the innkeeper and saying that he'll be back to take care of whatever the cost that he might incur. And after telling the story, Jesus asked this man, um, this, uh, the expert of the law, a professor, which of these three do you think uh, was a neighbor to this man? Of course, the expert of the law says the, the one who had mercy on him. It's as if he can't bear to say it's the Samaritan. He just can't say it. It's the one who had mercy on him. You see, the expert of the law probably didn't think the Samaritan was his neighbor, could be his neighbor. In fact, the ancient Jewish wisdom book, um, Sirach, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, 1 through 4, said, tells the readers not to help a sinner. But Jesus says, neighbor, a neighbor is everyone who is on our path who needs help. Everyone, even our sworn enemies. That this professor's definition of a neighbor is inadequate. It must include everyone, good and evil, rich or poor, Chinese, Pakistanis, or whatever, you, whatever it is. All those around us, regardless of color, creed, and status, that we have to be a kind of people that will help anyone that is in our, who is in our path. So he's changed, Jesus is changing the definition of who a neighbor is for us. But he's also calling for action, isn't he? Remember how the expert of the law asked. The question was, who is, na- who is our neighbor? That's a theoretical question. That's an abstract question. But Jesus' answer is a story in which somebody does something. He ends the story with the call to action in verse 37. Go and do likewise. He's saying to the professor that we can't be concerned with, we can't just be concerned with the abstract questions, theoretical questions, but we must be doers. Love, as we say, should be a verb, not a noun for the Christian. It was what, I think it was uh, Thomas Kempis who said, that whoever loves much, does much. Love should move us into action. Love is a verb for us. But you see, the concrete ways are always more difficult than the abstract. Discussing who our neighbor is over a cup of coffee in Starbucks with me is much easier than going and loving somebody. Just think of what this person did, what this Samaritan did for this man. This injured person was a major inconvenience. He must have been. He stops his trip. His trip is delayed not just by one or two hours. You know how when, you, when you're driving and there's traffic jam and your, your trip is delayed by half an hour and how mad you get. This man's trip was delayed by a day. 
if he had a deadline, he had to work extra day to make up that deadline. And it's not just the time. He takes that risk of going to him. I mean, who knows what kind of a man this is. Maybe he's pretending to be sick. And it costs money. He goes and uh, uh, he pays for, the, uh, for, for him. He, uh, he, uh, he, he pays for him and he says that he'll be back uh, to pay for, uh, for the rest of the cost. What we see here is love in action. Love that makes the lover vulnerable. Love that bears the cost of others. It means changing plans. It means working overtime. It means interruptions in our lives. It means uh, effort and exhaustion, money. You know, I mean, if you have children, you know what all that is about. And that's how we should be loving the people around us. Loving our neighbors is costly. So the question is, how is your life? What's your life look like? Is it messy? Is it costly? Or is it nice and tidy with no unexpected cost? And it's okay that you are, if you are in a neat moment, tidy moment in your life, but is it always tidy? Is it always tidy? The priest and the Levite didn't get their hands dirty. Are we more like the priest or are we more like the Samaritans? And if you're going, well, we can't help everybody. That's true. We can't help everybody. The needs of the world are actually too big. But we can't ignore the ones that God has put in our path. Actually, uh, one of my professor, philosophy professor, calls this, he's got a a cool name for everything. He's called this um, the principle of divine proximity. (laughs) So if God has brought somebody close to you, we have an obligation to help. If God has brought somebody to our path, we have an obligation to help. Rather than theorizing, we must start doing. Because our love of God is always expressed in our love of our neighbors. So we we have a choice. We have a choice. When the expert of the law was told to love God and love his neighbor, he tried to justify justify himself. And after the service, after this Sunday, you have a choice. You can go tell yourself, you know, this is too hard. This is too hard. I don't know if I can do it. I I don't know if I have the time to do it. And we also do this to ourselves with each other, don't we? We go downstairs and we tell each other, actually, you know, it's really hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for you. Actually, it's hard for everybody. I don't know if you can do it. We we try to justify each other, try to excuse each other, rather than saying, who is our neighbor? Who is your neighbor? How can I help you? How can I help the people that you're helping? How can I prepare myself to be the kind of person who goes out and does not ignore the needs of the people around me? Let's not have coffee conversations over this. I mean, actually, do have coffee conversations over this, but let's move that into action. Action. Go and do likewise. But before, actually, we do anything, think about why. Why we go and love our neighbors. It's because, really, because this amazing God has loved us first. And in some ways, this 
the Good Samaritan story is the gospel story, isn't it? We were dead in our sins. We were attacked by Satan and ruined by our own, our, our own doings. We were lying there dying. We had rebelled against God so much that the Bible calls us enemies of God. But when this Samaritan came, this Samaritan came, this Samaritan who had no reason to help, no reason, every reason to despise the, the, the Jew, this Samaritan came. God has come into our life. He's emptied himself. He breathed a new life into us. He poured out his spirit into us. He bore the cost of our sin, of taking care of us, and told us that he would return to redeem us, to make us whole completely. This is a story of what gospel. This is the story of the gospel. This is the story of what Jesus has done to us. This unexpected neighbor is God. It's Jesus to us. He first showed this love. And really, unless we're reminded of this love, we can't love like this. We don't have a choice. We don't know how to love like this. In fact, uh, Dr. J.I. Packard, in the book, Your Father Loves You, says that this Christian concept is, was so unique that it was really re- invented by the Christians. By Christians. This is what he writes. The Greek word agape, love, seems to to have been virtually a Christian invention, a new word for a new thing. Apart from about 20 occurrences in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's almost non-existent before the New Testament. Isn't that amazing? That the word agape does not occur outside of the New Testament, not that much, about 20 times. Agape, that sacrificial love, draws its meaning directly from the revelation of God, he writes. It's not a form of natural affection, however, intense, but a supernatural fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. It's a matter of will rather than feeling, for Christians must love even our enemies. It's the basic element in Christ-likeness. By ourselves, we don't know how to love like this. We don't know how to love like, like, like this. We would not know what un- unconditional love is unless God showed us. God loved us first. That love that bears the cost of another. The love that is unconditional. That true self-sacrificial love. But the good news is that Jesus came. That God shows us what this love is by loving us first by embracing us, even though embracing us means uh, his death, dying for us. Because God loved us, we love. Because God sent his son, loved us, sent his spirit. Not so that we will feel loving, but that our will will be shaped by this story. Our will be strengthened, that we will think rightly, that we will draw the ri- from the rich well of grace and love through the power of the Holy Spirit so we could go and do likewise. So let's listen. Let's go and do likewise. Let's be a church that's shaped by the story of the gospel. Let's pray.